2: The case being discussed in the next couple of episodes of Sworn was an emotional case. It was a horrific case. It was a highly publicized and emotional case. But the purpose of this podcast is not to relitigate guilt or innocence. And nothing that I say should be interpreted as an expression of my opinion about the guilt or innocence of anybody. Neither I nor this podcast is intended to relitigate the issues at trial the jury has spoken. This is about what the case looks like from the inside looking out. The case was extensively litigated by very good lawyers on both sides. A jury reached a verdict, and it's not our place to relitigate those issues. But we do want to bring you inside the case for an insider's look at the case of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris.
3: Place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear. We the jury find the defendant not guilty. Protests
4: continued this weekend in Ferguson and around the country.
3: Who is this? It makes no sense. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Judge, you are the last line of reason in this case. Every one of us took an oath of office and we're sworn to uphold the Constitution.
2: From Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway.
3: I'm thinking, worst case scenario, it's a really bad accident gone wrong. But then as I sat there and I listened to the evidence, I was like, oh my goodness.
2: Have you ever wondered what it's like to be a lawyer who has to represent someone who is accused of something horrific, who is seen as a monster and a reprehensible human being? What would it be like if you were the lawyer and you believe in your heart and your soul that that supposed monster is innocent? On June 18th of 2014, the Atlanta community tragically lost a beautiful soul with the horrifying death of 22-month-old Cooper Harris. Little Cooper's death was traumatic news, distressing to everyone who heard it as it made its way around the entire nation, and in fact, the world. This case had widespread media attention from the very beginning. Everyone had strong feelings about Cooper's death, and everyone seemed to have their own opinions on the case.
1: In Cumberland, near Cumberland, it looks like the baby is having a seizure. Okay,
4: what was that location, ma'am? Um, we're not the so single, like
1: it was nowhere. I can, can you see anybody around us. Yeah, he's dad and it looks like somebody's taking at
0: Can you see the baby from where you are? From where you are? Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Okay.
4: How does the
5: baby appear to be? He he's about a year and a half old. And can you see him breathing? I'm not sure. Hi, I'm Meredith Steadman, a producer on Sword. On the afternoon of June 18th, 2014, Cobb County Police received a 911 call from a woman witnessing a baby. appeared to be having a seizure, being pulled from a car in the parking lot of a shopping center. Due to the screams coming from the father, 22-month-old Cooper Harris was quickly surrounded by onlookers. A few people tried to help, CPR was attempted, but Cooper Harris was pronounced dead at the scene. Cooper Harris was the son of Justin Ross Harris, known as Ross, and Leanna Harris. They lived together in Marietta, Georgia, a suburb north of Atlanta. Ross Harris was a 33-year-old web developer for Home Depot, and the lead guitar player at his church. Leanna Harris was a 30-year-old dietitian. They met in Alabama, and at the time of the incident, the two had been married for roughly eight years. By all accounts, Ross and Leanna were kind people, active churchgoers, and a happy family. Around 9 a.m. on the morning of June 18th, Ross Harris and his son Cooper went to Chick-fil-A on Cumberland Parkway in Cobb County. After breakfast, he placed his son back into the rear-facing car seat in his Hyundai Tucson and headed off to drop Cooper at daycare. Around 4 p.m., Ross left his work and his wife Leanna headed to pick up her son from daycare. To Leanna's surprise, Cooper wasn't at the Little Apron Academy where he was supposed to be. After driving for about seven minutes, Ross pulled over at the Acres Mill Square Mall, screaming. Cooper had been in the car all day. The Acres Mill Square Mall in Cobb County, Georgia is a busy place with many different shops and restaurants. When Ross Harris pulled his 22-month-old son out from the back of the car seat, there were dozens of witnesses in the parking lot.
3: Early Wednesday morning, exactly one week ago, Justin Ross Harris was seen at this Atlanta area Chick-fil-A. Harris was seen strapping his 22-month-old son Cooper into his car seat. He drove less than a mile away to this Home Depot store support center where he works as a web designer. Normally, Harris takes Cooper to a daycare center on site, but not on this day. Instead, Harris headed inside the office and left his toddler in his rear-facing car seat in the back in the blazing Georgia sun. His
2: 22-month-old son was dead probably long before he tried to resuscitate him. It was tough. Um, it, it's, it's tough to, to see anyone pass, but especially a small child It made it especially tough. I don't know. He kept saying, what have I done? What have I done? And that's, that's all I could ascertain that he was saying.
3: What kind of emotions go through your mind seeing something like that?
2: You know, I, I just hope it's not the obvious. Hopefully he didn't do anything to, to harm the child, um, but I guess we'll know momentarily.
5: It was an extremely tragic accident resulting in the death of a young child. No one could conceive the pain and the guilt a parent must feel after such a devastating lapse in memory. But at 10 p.m. that same night, Ross Harris was arrested for murder.
2: After searching his office, police arrested the grieving father and charged him with felony murder and child endangerment. He has pleaded not guilty father's arrest is causing outrage, some agreeing with police and shocked at what happened, many saying the father has suffered enough. The justice system can't punish Ross worse than he is punishing himself, and it will only cause more pain for a grieving family. Harris's supporters online have raised more than $18,000 for his defense. I remember that day very clearly. I was in my car on my way back from my law office in Marietta, Georgia, and there was a lot of traffic way more than usual. I heard the traffic reporter, who's a friend of mine, say on the radio that it was due to police activity in the area and that they were investigating the death of a child left strapped in the back of a hot car on this very hot summer day. That precious child was Cooper Harris. The heartache that I felt is indescribable, and it was immediate. And I turned around to look at the empty car seat in the back of my own car, where my own son sometimes sits. I thought, what a tragic accident this had to be. But later that night, it was eventually reported that the father of this child, Justin Ross Harris, was accused of murder. I was stunned. How could this man be charged with murder? Based on the information provided to me at that time, I was not convinced that Ross Harris was a killer of any kind. I even chimed in on a couple of news stations about it.
1: Justin Ross Harris, 33 years old, now indicted on eight counts, including malice murder for the death of his 22-month-old son, Cooper.
4: Joining me now is Philip Holloway, a criminal defense attorney and former Atlanta prosecutor. Criminal
6: defense attorney Philip Holloway joins us now. I want to
4: bring in Phil Holloway.
6: Phil, give us a sense of what's going on right now. Malice
2: murder is something that is an intentional death. It, It indicates premeditation. It indicates deliberation, something that was planned in advance and particularly cruel. An abandoned and malignant heart is what Georgia Code calls malice. The arrest of Justin Ross Harris and the death of Cooper Harris sparked lots of national interest and awareness about the issue of leaving children in hot cars. As time went on, people basically split into two camps. Those who were absolutely convinced that he was guilty of murder and those who believed that it had to be a tragic accident. Nonetheless, the story was out And people were talking. Many people had doubts about Ross Harris's guilt. To gather some additional perspective on this case, I talked to a friend and colleague of mine named Vinny Pollinson. Vinny is an anchor at 11 Live News here in Atlanta, and he's a former correspondent for Court TV and at HLN. Vinny and I literally sat together during the probable cause hearing for this case with a CNN news crew right outside the courthouse.
3: Leading up to the probable cause hearing, I was not convinced that this was really a murder case. I'm thinking, worst case scenario, it's a really bad accident gone wrong. There's no way I could have even considered that a father would intentionally leave his son there. But then as I sat there and I listened to the evidence that was gonna be part of this case and the evidence against Ross Harris, what they uncovered in his searches and everything else, I was like, oh my goodness. First, you look at that day, that morning, and you watch all the videotapes, because you can track all of his motions and things that he did through surveillance. And there's two parts of it that are To me, very revealing. The one part that everyone was talking about where he's dropped off by his friends and he goes to put the light bulbs into his SUV. He opens the door of his SUV in the middle of the day at lunchtime and is able to put those light bulbs in but never looks inside the car. To me, that was so unusual, awkward, counterintuitive that you have light bulbs in your hand, you're placing them in your car, and you open the door, don't look inside, and toss the light bulbs in and close the door, and then turn around and walk away. But the most revealing part of the surveillance video comes after that moment, as he's walking back to his office from his car, where his son is dying or is already dead, and he passes someone. And as he passes that person, that person is walking towards the vehicle where Cooper is. As the person who passes Ross Harris starts to pass Ross Harris's SUV, you can see Ross Harris stop and peek over his shoulder to take a look at that guy. Why? Why is he looking? Is he, is he turning and looking over his shoulder to see if that person sees inside the window and can see the little Coopers inside his SUV? To me, very revealing.
2: At that probable cause hearing, the testimony was that Mr. Harris went to his car multiple times throughout the day, and the idea at the time that he could not have possibly been aware of what was happening in the back of his car seemed particularly
3: questionable. The part of the evidence, to me, that is so real for a juror to understand and so simple for a juror to understand we've talked always about ross harris's suv 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 it's not a chevy suburban this is not some super stretch suv this is a a, a compact suv i wouldn't even call it an a, a suv because i think that's so misleading this car is tiny and when you take a look inside and you see the photos that were presented by the prosecution of the interior of Ross Harris's vehicle, you can see how close that car seat is to the driver's seat. It is virtually inconceivable that you could sit in the driver's seat of that vehicle and not notice or understand that there's a child seat right next to you. Because remember, it's it's rear-facing. So it is right there within inches of the driver's seat. And if you're leaning over to grab your bag, if you're turning 40 degrees to your right, there's no way you don't notice that child seat. It's right there. So how on earth could he drive for more than 10 seconds and not remember that there's a child seat there? He didn't have a rear-facing camera. He's gotta take a peek over his shoulder. And as soon as you turn, the slightest bit over your right shoulder inside, there's no way on earth you don't see the car seat.
2: One of the big issues in the case was Mr. Harris's physical size and the small size of the SUV. How could he have not noticed the child in the back of the car when he left work that day? In other words, was this just a freak accident, or did Ross Harris intentionally leave his son to bake to death in the back of a hot car. One thing that was constant from the beginning of the case all the way through the conclusion of the trial is that Justin Ross Harris maintained his innocence. On the day he was arrested, he expressed those exact feelings to his wife while he was in the interrogation room at the Cobb Police Headquarters. As a general practice, the cameras inside police interview rooms or interrogation rooms are always running. This interrogation video, along with several others, later became a key piece of evidence in the trial. And one thing that in particular really stood out to the investigators... Liana, Mr. Harris's wife, asked him in the interview room, among other things, did you say too much? Say too much? No, to, to investigators, that was an odd question. And the demeanor of Mr. Harris and his wife didn't add up. In the eyes of the investigators, the tears and the emotion that was displayed during that interaction between Liana and Ross Harris was not genuine. And that was a source of much debate, both before the trial and during the trial.
3: The most shocking part of of this case for me was finding out who Justin Ross Harris really was.
2: More to come after the break.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. It's
2: still really hard to get your head wrapped around why would a person intentionally leave their son to die in one of the worst ways possible? What
3: could possibly be the motive? When it first happened people sort of forget the initial reaction. You know, you had a, an aggressive prosecution team who's charging this father, apparently not giving him time to grieve. It's the way it played in, in, in the media and, and publicly. Initially, was that this father was almost being victimized by the system, by the prosecution, who had jumped to a conclusion and was being overly aggressive and and was was trying to turn this into something that it wasn't. And then that got turned around very quickly because of the shocking revelation of who Ross Harris was and the life that he was leading and, and what his true focus was. This was not a guy who was living anything close to a traditional life. It was absolutely a shocking moment because you learned so much more about who he was and this, this double life that he had. And there was something... That, that I would consider a motive. And you, you think about a father and a son, why would a father kill his son? And, and to me, that's a question that had to be addressed before you could even think about this being an intentional murder. Behind
2: the scenes, police were uncovering information that would begin to paint Justin Ross Harris in a completely different light.
6: The Cobb County father accused
2: of intentionally leaving his 22-month-old son, Cooper, in a hot car to die. Just two weeks before Cooper died, Harris started an online sexual relationship with a woman, and it continued during the day that the toddler died.
1: Yet again, another woman met randomly, first through an app from a phone called Whisper.
2: During the police investigation, Law enforcement discovered that Justin Ross Harris was not only engaging in explicit sexual conversations and sexting with multiple women, some of them minors, he was also having extramarital affairs, including sex with prostitutes. There's a difference between being a bad father and being a bad husband. Being an adulterer, a philanderer, a cheater, and even sexting with underage girls doesn't necessarily mean that you're a murderer, does it? It was apparent to everybody, at least those in the legal community following this case, that this information, if it made its way into an indictment, would most certainly cause a jury to hate Justin Ross Harris at a minimum.
3: Yeah, there are husbands who cheat on their wives. There are husbands who have mistresses, but this is a man who became so obsessed with sex and his pursuit of women, it was like it was like 24/7, this was the most important thing in his life. And for me, that's the shocking part that a father of a young child like that could be overtaken in his mind with, with something other than the well-being of his own child. And, and the most important thing in Ross Harris's life on the day his child died was again, pursuing sex with random women that he's meeting and it was that obsession to me that was the most shocking part of this that was the big revelation once you find out what was going on in his life and and what he was doing and what he was up to and this secret double life that he had you could understand that in his mind there somehow you could form a reason why i would want to get out of that life and take the life of my own son it reminded me of Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson was a, a husband and a soon-to-be father who killed his nine-month pregnant wife out in California. He's sitting on death row right now. I saw the, the similarities between the two cases in that Scott Peterson wanted to live a life that he could not live as a husband and father. And for Ross Harris, same thing. There was a a life that he wanted to lead that was so different than being a responsible husband, so different than being a responsible father, that the way to get there, it's sick, I know, but the way to get there would be to take the life of his own child. This guy, this father, intentionally left his son inside that car.
5: During the investigation, a few unsavory details came out about Ross Harris and the events of that day. Firstly, Harris claimed to forget his son was in the car during the drive from breakfast to his workplace. However, that drive was only 0.5 miles, maybe five minutes, conceivably less. Secondly, Harris had gone to his car that day once in between breakfast and leaving work. He had lunch with some coworkers that day, and after lunch, he'd gone to his car to put some light bulbs inside... But even then, he said he didn't see Cooper. Thirdly, and maybe most disturbingly, Harris had been sexting with multiple women that day, including one underage girl.
2: Chuck Boring, the lead prosecutor in the case of the state of Georgia versus Justin Ross Harris, agreed to talk with me about his part in the trial.
6: As a prosecutor, I think you have a higher duty and a higher burden on your shoulders. We have a, you know, our oath and our duty is not just to to try to seek convictions, but to do justice, whatever that may be. I think we have an ethical obligation to both the state bar and the general bar, but also our duties as a prosecutor to make sure that justice is done. Whereas with a, uh, you know, a criminal defense attorney or a civil litigant, you know, their duty is to their client to represent them to the utmost within the confines of the state bar. Rules and the law, but their duty is to their client. Our duty is to, I guess, more of a general cause of trying to do what is right.
2: Is there one particular case that is, say, the most high profile that you've ever tried?
6: I mean, that's probably as of recent times, it was the the uh, Justin Ross Harris case that we tried last fall. I'm sure that was probably, it garnered the most media attention, no doubt. Would you consider this to be an unusual case? Yeah. I mean, I think this is obviously, it was a case that. We haven't seen the, this exact circumstance, but in a lot of the, uh, the the cases that involve deaths of children, none of them are the exact same, but this was definitely something that was uh, out of the norm. I would say generally doing child crimes, one of the uh, particular hurdles that we have that we have to get over is general societies, not like you and I who see this stuff on a daily basis, but you know, general society doesn't understand the, the things that we see. And I don't think they want to believe the evil that exists out there and the, the terrible things that go on in our community, you know, uh, every day. And so that's one of the hurdles we have to look at and have to take into consideration, uh, not so much in charging a lot of times, but in how we're going to approach the argument. How, how are we going to get through to the jury that, you know, evil does exist and this person was capable of it? In most cases you see in the media, a uh, lot there are times where there are things that may be accurate, inaccurate, half accurate. And, you know, it, it's tough sometimes to sit back and, and just let it happen. But that's what you have to do. You know, as a prosecutor, we we couldn't come up and say, you know what, we see this sentence here in the, the newspaper or on TV. And we want to say that we need to correct that. We, we can't do that at the time. We have to let it come out in the courtroom. Why is that? Well, I think you know that one thing is you don't want to taint a jury. That's one of the the big problems when you have a case uh, with media uh, attention and publicity. One of the biggest problems is when, as far as you know, the appellate decisions have held is if a prosecutor or a defense attorney comes out and puts out intentionally, or maybe not intentionally, but a, a statement outside of the courtroom that turns out not to be correct. If a court finds that that was done and it was done to influence the jury improperly, you know that could affect the prosecution of the case. So you you, ha- you have to be very careful and we have ethical obligations as well about what we should or shouldn't say uh, in the media outside of a courtroom uh, before the trial is had to a jury. Let's talk about the
2: attempt that you mentioned at picking a jury in Cobb county. What extraordinary measures were undertaken to attempt to pick a jury in Cobb county?
6: Well, I think the first thing that was done that was you know everyone agreed on trying to that would help accomplish it was bringing in an extraordinary amount of jurors, uh, hundreds of jurors, as opposed to, you know, for one case, you may have a general jury pool and the judge calls 42 jurors up. You know, we had hundreds of jurors just called in for this case. Uh, Another thing we had done, we thought that may uh, expedite some of the situations and ferret out people that there was just absolutely no way they could be on the jury was to do jury questionnaires regarding pretrial publicity and a myriad of of, uh, other subjects related to the case. So that's another tool that we tried to utilize to try to actually see if we could get a fair and impartial juror in this county.
2: Extensive efforts were made to find an impartial jury in Cobb County, Georgia. Defendants have a constitutional right to be tried in the county where the crime is alleged to have occurred. But in the end, after much effort and much deliberation by the judge, it was decided that the venue of the trial needed to be changed, particularly because of pervasive negative media. What went through your head when you realized that this show was about to go on the road?
6: I tried to make sure that my main thought process was, what is the best thing legally and the best thing for this case? You know, what is the best thing to do justice for the victim in this crime? You know, so... For good or ill, whatever happened extraneously, not saying that wasn't in the back of our minds, I'm sure, but you have to be cognizant and make sure that your decision is based upon what is the most legally appropriate thing to do and what is the best thing for the case. After we got done and the venue had been changed, that's when the kind of reality of it washes over you. And then you start thinking about how are we going to live? Where are we going to go? You know? And, it, and as as when a case when you change venue like that and you move hundreds of miles away, just mo- as the months go toward trial, there are things you haven't thought of before, like oh great, how am I going to get this? How am I going to get that? I've got to find a dry cleaner wherever this is going to go. Big and small, it starts to wash over you once that actually is the the triggers pulled.
2: How was it decided upon? Glenn County, Georgia, and Brunswick. Well,
6: the way that the suggestions are made to the judge uh, in in a case like this, the parties can. Defense and state can make suggestions about different uh, counties that they may want to try the case in. And, uh, you know, it's up to the judge ultimately to make a determination. She can pick one of the counties suggested by the parties or she can independently decide on a county. Um, What you have to do is look at the demographics of the county involved uh, that you're trying to move venue to. The goal is to find something that's demographically similar to the county that you're already, you know, the the original county that venue is in. And so, Glenn County actually, over the years, has been a, a county where, in cases where venue has been changed, both from Glenn County to another county and from Cobb to uh, Glenn, it's it's gone back and forth a little bit because the demographics of both counties they kind of mirror each other. And so, it was a natural fit. For one other thing that I think had to be taken in consideration was that when it's got venue is being changed because of a, the aspect of media attention it probably would be most wise to switch venue to somewhere that may have a different media uh, hub. And m- most of the news and things of that nature down in Brunswick, St. Simons, they're actually in the Jacksonville media market, not Atlanta. So uh, you have to move it far enough away to at least numb some of the, the pretrial publicity.
2: I want to speak briefly about the, the car that Cooper died in. It was transported to Brunswick for the trial, correct? Correct. How was it transported?
6: As far as the the vehicle getting it getting it down there, I'll say you know it 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 was costly to do it to make sure it got down there in a, a manner that it preserved it. There were no, nothing you know because you wanted to make sure nothing was was done incorrectly. So it was it was a task to get the car transported down there and to house it.
2: How many times have you tried a case where there was no one in the courtroom who represented the victim in the case?
6: A lot of the child homicides that I prosecuted over the years and I prosecuted a lot, I'd say in the majority of them, there's no one there because usually you have, I mean, honestly, a lot of times one of the parents or one of the caregivers is the offender. And many of the times the non-offending caregiver is supportive of the offender. And so a lot of times there's nobody there for the victim. It's sad. I mean, I still have, you know, in life photos of several of the victims of, you know, child homicides I prosecuted over the years going back to 2005. You know, as a reminder, you know they they were, you know they were victims, and even though they don't have family members to go put flowers on their graves, or you know they don't have you know uh, memorials, and you know they don't have people calling up to our office to touch base with us because they were with us through the trial. uh, You want to keep some memory of you know that that living being whose life was taken from them criminally, and so in in one regard it, it it can be sad, and another is something that you know, makes me proud to be able to represent that type of victim.
2: You've got a jury in the box. You present your case. You cross-examine witnesses. You examine other witnesses. The defense puts up its case. Motions are argued during the middle of a trial. And now you're at the end. What does it feel like to stand in front of that
6: jury in that moment? I was I was pretty worn down by the time it got there. But I, I will say in the eighth second close, it wasn't so much exhaustion, but it was finally like, I finally get the, this last opportunity and complete opportunity to seek justice for the victim in the case. And so I think that's what it felt like, is this is, you know, this moment is finally here. Everything is out there before the jury, so here it is. One thing that I've
2: learned in my role as a legal analyst in the media, both on radio and television, is that you can't go by emotions. You've got to put those aside. You've got to be neutral. You can't be a cheerleader for one side or the other. You have to stick to the facts that are being reported. But particularly, you have to be careful not to draw assumptions from those facts. Because in a criminal trial, what is or is not a fact is always a question for a jury.
0: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.
2: I reached out to Veronica Waters, a friend of mine and a radio journalist who covers crime and who followed this case very closely from the beginning all the way to the end.
4: People were feeling so sorry for this family and for this young dad who seemed to have lost his world. But then very early on, talking to one or two of the witnesses out there in that parking lot, We started to hear one or two rumblings about "Hmm, maybe this dad wasn't quite the grieving father that we first thought. He seemed a little stiff. He seemed a little not quite all there. Something about him seemed a little off. And then very quickly, as we heard from police, that there were some suspicions enough to hold him behind bars. The sort of focus of the story quickly turned from, oh, my gosh, how could this happen to, oh, my gosh, did somebody make this happen on purpose?
2: As a journalist, how do you go about separating your personal feelings about that question, uh, could somebody have made this happen on purpose, from being objective in the way you report about it?
4: Well, you never lose sight that somebody lost his life. It's impossible, really, to separate your emotions from knowing that somebody died a terrible death. I mean, as an adult, have you we've all gotten into a hot car in the middle of the summertime and maybe you drop the keys before you can put them in the ignition really quickly and turn on the car, but we've all had those few seconds of being in a car that was baking in the sun for a couple of hours before we got in. So you kind of know what that really uncomfortable prickle is like when you are in your own hot car but you know you have the power to turn on the AC, let down the window, and you can kind of chill a little bit, literally chill out a little bit. But you know that Cooper never had that option. And so you don't not know that Cooper died, but in a different way, but sort of the same as how you are as an attorney, you have to look at all sides of everything, basically just report things straight down the middle. And just because the police say, I've never seen something so horrific in my life and we believe that this was done on purpose doesn't mean that you have to believe it too. And I think the way that you keep that in mind means that you do your job as a reporter and and not sort of try to sway the audience. I mean, my job is to go straight down the middle and um, and that's what I did. You sort of have to pay attention to not getting caught up in the spin and looking at what is actually presented at trial. But I think for the jury in this case, emotion did really lead the way because there was a lot of, um, at the at the end of the day, a lot of people just couldn't imagine that somebody could forget their kid. And in either case, and in any case, I think a lot of people thought, even if you were distracted, no matter what you were doing, you still have to pay the price for leaving your kid in the car. Well, I think
2: what a lot of people really couldn't separate in their mind was the allegation of sexting from the question of whether or not he actually purposely left his child in the car to die.
4: People were horrified by that. How could you be sexting six different ladies on the day that your son is dying in a hot car in June? It was just unfathomable. I think a lot of people were saying, I don't want to believe he did it, but if he did it, he should fry. I think at that point, it was still hard for people, a lot of people, to believe that he had actually done it. But people were furious with him at the, at the thought of it. Even though we live in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty, I think a lot of people tend to think that if you are ever put in handcuffs, you probably did it. And, of course, as you know, as a defense attorney, this is why the way that your client is presented in front of a jury is so important. And that goes for even pretrial hearings, motions hearings, where they might be coming to court. We don't want them seen in an orange jumpsuit, say the defense attorneys, because we don't want to prejudice the jury pool against our client. So people are already horrified. And shocked at the nature of this alleged crime. Do we really want to make it worse by, you know, parading this guy out in jail blues or whatever and in handcuffs shackled at the ankles and wrists to sort of hammer home the image of a guy who's, you know, guilty before he's even had a chance to go to trial? I think I may have said to you earlier that we had people who were saying, I get it. I've been distracted. I've forgotten stuff. And and, in quiet moments, there are some people who will actually tell you I have forgotten my kid in a car. Didn't happen for eight hours on a summer day, but I've walked away from the car for X number of seconds or minutes and forgotten that I had a kid in the car.
2: Veronica was actually in the courtroom when the prosecution displayed the horrific and graphic images of the deceased body of little Cooper Harris. I asked her what was in her mind when she saw those photos.
4: It was heartbreaking. I mean, I I really felt something in my chest. I really hurt. When we heard about what Cooper probably experienced that day was bad. But just looking at the pictures of his frozen little precious body, this beautiful little boy, you just, I think, you know, you wish you could roll back time. You can't imagine that someone could have done that on purpose. Who would wish this kind of death on somebody? I do think that The verdict against Ross Harris was a condemnation of how he spent his married life. Listening to the cases laid out by the state and the defense, I was shocked. I just think for a lot of people, it is hard to separate someone who lies and cheats that much, or from someone who could be a killer. And I certainly think that that was the argument made by the prosecutor. Conversely, Maddox Kilgore said, this is a guy who has moral failings. He's a terrible husband, but he loved his kid more than anything. And I think one of the things that was very surprising to me was that the prosecution rested its case without ever having called a single witness who could say that Ross Harris ever even spoke a cross word to Cooper. And that was a shock to me because there was not one person who ever said, yeah, he seemed like he loved Cooper, but I remember that time he snatched that boy's arm in the grocery store. Or I remember the time he spanked him and I just didn't think that was right. We never heard one single person say that Ross Harris had even frowned at his little boy one day. By all accounts, Ross Harris loved Cooper.
2: Even though the prosecution found what they believed was convincing evidence that Justin Ross Harris was cheating on his wife with multiple women and that he was more concerned with his extramarital sex life than the safety of his own child on the day little Cooper died, not everyone was convinced yet that this was a murder. Both sides prepared for what would be a very drawn-out trial, several hundred miles outside of Atlanta, all the way down to Brunswick, Georgia. The question remained, was this murder or was this just a horrible accident? Justin Ross Harris was represented by a defense team led by a friend of mine named Maddox Kilgore. Maddox's job was to convince the jury that Justin Ross Harris loved his son Cooper that he was a good father. And as a good father, he could never have done something like intentionally murdering his child in this horrible way. His job was to raise reasonable doubt wherever it may have existed. And ultimately, it was up to Maddox to prove to the jury that this was nothing more than a tragic accident. From watching Maddox in court and knowing him like I do, I know that he really, truly, honestly believes that this was a tragic accident. I sat down with Maddox Kilgore to talk about the case. Next time on Sworn. Sworn is produced by Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta. Story, production, and sound design by Payne Lindsay. Executive producers Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. And if you haven't yet, please check out our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, that follows the investigation into the disappearance of Georgia high school teacher and beauty queen, Tara Grinstead. Up and Vanished is available now on Apple Podcasts. Sworn is mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. If you're in the market for podcast production, go to ResonateRecordings.com to get your first episode produced for free. If you haven't already, please head over to iTunes now to subscribe, rate, and review Sworn. And make sure you check us out online at SwornPodcast.com. And follow us on social media at Sworn Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, at Phil Holloway ESQ on Twitter.
0: With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.